Nuclear. This field of science was responsible for the devastating conclusion to the Second World War. This alone would be enough to suggest why few other technologies conjure as much misunderstanding and fear. Today, the very same field now quietly supports our way of life by providing unique ways to interact with reality. It allows us to observe the world in impossibly fine resolution, it enables us to measure and gauge events of the distant past, offers options for diagnosis and treatment of severe ailments, and generates great power with exceptionally low carbon emissions. The greatest tool for promoting understanding is discussion, and it is well overdue in Australia. Welcome to Going Fishing, Australia's nuclear technology discussion. The World Nuclear Association is an international trade association based in the UK and committed to promotion of the global nuclear industry. The World Nuclear Association is to provide a forum for industry members to interact toward the goal of commercial advancement in all areas of the nuclear fuel cycle. Their website is an invaluable source of detailed information and is freely available. This episode's guest is a senior advisor to the WNA based in my hometown of Melbourne. Ian Hall-Lacey, welcome to Going Fishing. Hi. Uh, before we start, I'd like to thank you for having the uh, W1A website because when I was studying for my master's, it was my number one research tool. Professors don't bat an eyelid, don't bat an eyelid against a W1A cit- uh, citation. Right. We take some care to make sure that everything's checked and accurate. And we used to actually publish, 10, 15 years ago, publish a sort of um, an intellectual warranty on the website saying if anybody finds anything that's wrong, please let us know and we'll correct it immediately. Uh, or anything that's misleading, uh, you know, that's slanted, um, and um, we'll correct it. And got about three emails a year on that. Yeah, you know, right. The, the, the worst, the were errors that got in occasionally, but they're only very small ones. Yes, yeah, wait. All right. So, well, I'd like to start. Let's start with your early career. So, well, please check all that apply. <laughs> Farmer, social youth worker, science teacher, environmental scientist, author or editor to a dozen books, a consultant to several disciplines in business or a business owner, and now semi-retired. Yep. Have I missed anything? Oh, I can't think of it at the moment. Yep. Is working with uranium that energising? Yes. No, look, I, I, um, I first got involved with this really... Um, having written a book in after, soon after I joined the mining industry from being a high school teacher, uh, I was absolutely fascinated with all the scientific aspects of in the environmental management in the industry, which I was, my job was environmental scientist in head office. And so I wrote a book on mining and the environment, which was a huge success. And because of that, Rod Carnegie called me into his office and said, uh, you know, I want you to write a book on nuclear power. Uh, because every, you know, this is 1978 or 77, um, the nuclear debate in Australia is going nowhere. People are talking past one another. <laughs> what's changed? <laughs> um, what's changed indeed. Uh, I want you to write a book that puts everything down clearly uh, and relates what's being said from one side uh, with what's being said from the other side. Uh, and so that anybody can understand, you know, this, the pro and anti things and how they're earthed in reality. So that's a terrific idea, Rod, but I don't know the first thing about nuclear power. He said, that's all right, I've got Ron Hubery over here who knows all about nuclear power, but isn't very experienced in writing. Um, He'll work with you. 
So the two of us worked together and published uh, the first edition of Nuclear Electricity in 1978. And uh, that was a great success. And the 11th edition of that was published this year. Um, it, on my, uh, the last seven editions have been over my name only um, because Ron, Ron's older than me and retired earlier. Yep. Um, but, um, and so 40 years down the track, 11th edition. Uh, and that's how I got into it. I, I, I was just absolutely fascinated by nuclear power then. And even though I didn't move fully to work with nuclear and uranium uh, for some years after that, um, like about 15 years, um, I was still fascinated and still kept my nose in the subject very much and kept a little bit up to date with it. Very good. Evidently, your involvement in nuclear only sort of scratches the surface of your experience. Could you tell us a little bit more about your knowledge of sort of environment, farming and mining? Well, environment and mining and the environment. Um, my first job in the industry was as environmental scientist. I was the first head office environmental scientist in the Australian mining industry. There were people out there in the bush doing stuff, obviously. Um, but my role was to be a generalist to, um, and to write uh, and to inform management uh, very much about what were environmental concerns and, broadly speaking, how they might be addressed. That meant water pollution, air pollution and land management, land re particularly revegetation of mine sites. Uh, so that, that was how I got into that and um, I was in that role for about five years. So you're also employed in several capacities with CRA Limited for close to 20 years. So firstly, who was CRA Limited and, and who are they now and what were, what were those roles? CRA was Consink Rio Tinto uh, and um, the company was, went through a few changes and it's now Rio Tinto Limited. So it's, it's, it's Rio Tinto that I was working for for 20 years. Um, as I say, the first five as environmental scientist. Uh, then I went into corporate affairs uh, and had carriage of a very interesting project uh, called Out of the Fiery Furnace, looking at, um, looking at how um, minerals had affected human civilization. Our chairman, Rod Carnegie, was a, a real visionary, and um, he, uh, he had seen, I think it's Alistair Clarke's uh, TV series on civilization, I think it was called, uh, which he thought was fascinating, but it did not show the role of minerals in enabling civilization and energy, minerals and energy. So out of the fiery furnace was to redress that balance and do something similar to um, that with, um, with the emphasis on minerals and energy. And I was the company person responsible for interacting with Robert Raymond, who was the producer, uh, and uh, the and the oh, who, uh, Michael Charlton, I think it was no, not Michael Charlton, um, Richard Charlton. Oh, I've forgotten his name already. Uh, was the front man, um, and we produced a uh, seven-part TV series, which was shown on the ABC twice, and sold around the world. On, on this out of the fiery furnace. So that, that, that absorbed me for two or three years. And then I got into corporate training and um, organizational development roles and so on. And, yeah. and also interaction between the mining industry and, and industry more generally and the education system in the Dawkins years. So I 
I actually ended up on uh, Dawkins um, Schools Council, which was part of the federal in, in, federal education uh, initiative. Right. It's it's something I remember because I used to work uh, in mines myself, and you'd have conversations with the um, friends, and yeah, there'd be a bit of joshing and whatnot. I remember one of my friends once said to me, well, oh, you know, you're working for a mining company, that's sort of a bit environmentally irresponsible. How do you cope with that? And I just sort of remembered was this. They wouldn't be mined if there was no market for them. And the fact is that their mine means that people need them, people use them. If you want to run you know, a, a world in which we live, we're all complicit in this activity. You can't just say that someone who's a miner is any less responsible to, to the use of resources, to the use of mining as compared to anyone else who lives in a sort of a current society, or at least that's the way I sort of see it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, if you want energy, it's got to be obtained from somewhere. If you want materials whether it's uh, just consumer goods or whether it's, uh, you know, railways and tramways and roads and so forth, there's got to be some mining involved. Absolutely. It doesn't just appear out of thin air. No. So you went to work for the Uranium Information Centre in 1995. What was the, the purpose of this organisation? It was set up to um, by the Australian Uranium Miners... Uh, mining companies to um, be a source of public information about nuclear power because uh, otherwise they felt that they were vulnerable to misrepresentation by green groups and so forth about uranium and what it was for. And of course, you know, Australia is probably uh, the only developed country in the world uh, where when you flick a switch for electricity, you don't get some nuclear generated electricity. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, nuclear power is, is intrinsically fairly mysterious and, and far off, uh, way out almost, for Australians. Absolutely. Um, now, one of my previous interviews was with um, Daniel Zavatiero. Was the Uranium Infos Information Centre, was, uh, was that the body that became um, the Uranium Arm of Minerals Council of Australia? Yes, it became, um, while I was with it, uh, and in the process of transferring to London gradually, uh, it became the Australian Uranium Association, and, after, and, and that, was, uh, that was run as a very sort of politically oriented body, uh, and it achieved its aims very, very well. Um, and having achieved those, it was felt that it could be shrunk, it could be amalgamated with the Minerals Council and basically shrunk down to um, Daniel. Um, are you able to give us a bit more of uh, maybe the specific day-to-day -day work you did with that particular organisation? Mainly keeping up to date, it, it, basically the same. I did pretty much the same work over the 20-something years that I was with UIC and then merging into World Nuclear Association. And that work was basically keeping up with everything that's going on in the nuclear industry, particularly nuclear power, but also to a small extent uh, isotopes and medical uses and so on, research reactors, uh, working out what was significant in that and writing it up. Very good. So Australia, it's a heavily resource-driven economy boasting the world's largest share of uranium, uh, which we mine for export, but we don't use ourselves, excepting some very trivial amounts used at Opal. So how did we sort of get here? Can you give us a broader crash course in Australian uranium history? <laughs> uh, 
Well, it really started, I guess, in World War II uh, with the atomic programs, uh, particularly the British atomic program. Um, and um, Australia was known to have some uranium, um, and that started to be mined, I think, in the 1950s. I've, I've documented all the figures somewhere, but I don't have them in my head. That's fine. Um, but Rum Jungle was the first mine, and that was... Um, basically run by the Australian Atomic Energy Commission, which became ANSTO later on, uh, but with in collaboration with the British, who were the customers. And then also the, the next mine online was uh, Mary Kathleen in Queensland, and that was also with the British Atomic Energy people as, as or atomic um, people as, as, as customers. Uh, and then there was a second phase of uranium mining, which started in the 1970s, uh, with Ranger, and there was a big, big uh, public inquiry, the Ranger Uranium Mine Environmental Inquiry, I think it was called. The, oh, the Fox Report, I think, was the short name, yep. the shorthand it name. Produ- yeah, Mr. Justice Fox was the uh, in charge of that, and he produced the Fox Report. That was a very, very thorough public inquiry into the whole of the nuclear industry, uh, and and of course, at that time, it was made very clearly that any Australian, further Australian uranium, would be used only for power generation, not for weapons. Um, and um, and things have rolled along since then, with various mines being opened and, you know, Labor governments having a three mines policy and then dithering around on that. Uh, but it, it's, um, it's, you know, there's sort of, there's been a fair bit of flux, but basically, uh, I guess you could generalise and say there's been pretty much bipartisan agreement since the 1970s uh, that Australia should be mining uranium and should be supplying uh, the world with it to generate electricity. So bipartisan agreement just for sort of the front end or that aspect of the front end part of the fuel yep. cycle. Not so much on the AR, on the actual power generation and what to do no. at the back end. No, that's, that's, that's been subject to a good deal of fear-mongering over the years. And, it's, and nobody's really resisted that because Australia is uniquely well-placed in the world with high-quality black coal close to where the main um, electricity demand centres are. Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, it's been brown coal. Uh, in South Australia, it's been much lower-quality coal, but there has been some West Australia very relatively little. But in the eastern states, uh, there's been so much coal which has been easily mineable and very convenient. Haven't got to transport it very far. And um, so, you know, it's an absolute no-brainer to use that, and that is by far the most economical um, way of producing power, as it was perceived, rather than sort of getting into nuclear with one... with two little caveats on that. The... um, Firstly, there was a proposal to get into nuclear power uh, in the early 70s, I think, and uh, there was a site uh, prepared at Jarvis Bay for for a reactor, Uh, but that, with a change of government or a change of prime minister, that didn't go anywhere. And and the other thing to say about our our coal is that it's, by world standards, low sulphur. So this means that a generating plant uh, using Australian coal um, can is cheaper than international plants, which have have to spend about an extra ten percent probably of capital to um, and operating expense to uh, scrub the sulphur out of their um, 
smokestack gases. Can you give us a bit more um, uh, description of sort of the technical aspects of sulfur content in coal and how that affects the power generation? Well, it's, it's a lot of world coal has sulfur up to about 5%. Uh, and when you burn the coal, that comes out as sulfur dioxide, which comes down as acid rain. And acid rains were in the, I think, 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, quite notorious in parts of the Northern Hemisphere and were, you know, absolutely devastating forests and so forth downwind. The World Nuclear Association, a small non-profit organisation based in the UK, tell us about its role in the world. Well, it's a membership organisation. It's got about 80 80 members, all corporate members, no, no individuals. Um, and like any trade association, it, it, it exists to advance the collective interests of its members. And uh, so it, it has working groups which consider issues of mutual interest across the industry and you know, things that need to be talked about and resolved and you know, knowledge uh, taken forward and so forth. Um, so there are about 10 or so working groups, or might be a dozen working groups in the WNA. And um, those um, are a means of bringing people together from around the industry. And then there's a couple of big conferences each year, one which uh, we run on our own in September and one which we run with in collaboration with the main industry group in the United States uh, in May, April, May. Um and, you know, it's worth noting that the, the Industry Association in the United States, which is the Nuclear Energy Institute, NEI, is actually about 10 times the size of World Nuclear Association. Wow. I mean, we're the, we're the world organisation. You know, our staff's about 24 or so. Um, but the US organisation, because it is a political lobbying organisation as, as well as a trade association for um, mutual membership sharing of information... Uh, is much much bigger, and it has a it has a significant presence uh, in Washington. Um, the World Nuclear Association has no real political role beyond the United Nations, because it's international. Right. So there's no particular government that we need to go and bash their ear. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think it sort of kind of makes sense because I think if. Last time I checked, the the US nuclear fleet, even though it's only, I think, 20% of their electrical generation, it's still yes. just shy of 100 operational reactors today, I think, yep. um, which is a massive fleet. I mean, we look at France as being, okay, 70% nuclear, but it's still only around, it's still only around half that size, like 56 yep. reactors. Um, so I suppose in that way, it kind of makes sense that the NEI would be such a large organisation. Yep, yep. And, uh, yeah, and there are a lot of companies involved in the States. There's been a lot of rationalisation over the last 30 years in terms of ownership and management of plants. But, um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very big setup. And 20% of electricity in the United States is a lot of electricity. Yeah, it's a, it's a, massive, uh, it's a massive market. Can you give us a bit of an idea on how World Nuclear Association is structured? Oh, well, it's got a board yeah. um, and a director general and some staff. Very uh, typical of most. Yep, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, nothing fancy about it. Hmm. Very good. And um, so does, it's World Nuclear, it, okay, so it's a World Nuclear Association. What does it do for Australia? Not a lot. Yeah. Um, it's, 
its origins were very much um, in mining and, and, and trading, and it was originally called the Uranium Institute, and it became the World Nuclear Association, purely a name change, no function change, in about 2001. Um, because it had evolved, you know, in the direction of, um, you know, power and also the um, front-end functions of uh, conversion and enrichment and fuel fabrication and in the back-end functions of waste, which have progressively sort of got more significant as time's gone Center on. Centre stage. Yep. I mean, no, nobody nobody is worried about waste initially, except everybody knew that, you know, the, the high-level waste, highly radioactive, okay, well take it out and let it cool for 50 years, so worry about it after 50 years. The reason for that, obviously, is that um, between when you switch a reactor off to take the fuel out and 50 years, the level of radioactivity goes down to about 0.1%. So it's obviously much easier to handle um, at the 50-year mark. So the idea has always been just to store it and then worry about disposal much later on. The delay and decay method. Yeah, yeah pretty much. But it, it, it's, um, you know, so, so that's why, you know, now that we're 50 or 60 years into the history of nuclear power, uh, waste management, waste disposal is becoming much more of a focus of attention. Some of the main members are actually the generators. They're the ones with the big cash flow because they're selling lots of electricity. Whereas the sort of service functions at the front and back are, are um, much smaller in an economic sense, but quite significant from the point of view of the, of the um, organisation's function. It's a thing that seems to come up quite a lot when people are talking about nuclear. Okay, what are you going to do decommissioning? What are you going to do about this? Now, my understanding is most of these big plants, there is a fund that exists once the plant starts generating and it's just paid into that uh, small amount. So... By the end of it, no, become, I don't know, superannuation, interest, whatnot. By the end of it, there's a kitty of money ready for yep. the decommissioning of That's these plants. pretty it's much how it works. Standard operating Just procedure. like a superannuation fund. Yes, yeah, sweet. Except like, that, uh, you know, the life, the, the life is often a bit more predictable. <laughs> yeah, well, true. <laughs> and, uh, and the point is you, you, then, um, you then tap the fund when the uh, plant closes. And uh, the money's there ready to do what you want to. Now, most plants are not dismantled immediately. Once they're taken out of service, uh, mostly they're obviously defueled straight away. But beyond that, uh, usually, more often than not, nothing nothing much else is done. Uh, And the reason for that is that you've got a lot of activation products in the steel of the reactor pressure vessel and so forth. Um, there are um, isotopes of uh, iron and nickel and cobalt and something else um, which are quite radioactive and you, if you let those decay quietly for 20 or 30 or 40 years uh, you can then get at it without any great radiation protection. If you want to rip the thing to pieces earlier uh, you, there's got to be a bit of expense in terms of radiation shielding and so forth to remote handling. Okay, but while it's there and there's a massive concrete dome over the top of it, it's not really going to do much. It's just going to sit there. That's right. Very good. What do you sort of see as Australia's role in the industry? Maybe should it change? Should it be changed? Should it increase, decrease? What's what's your personal opinion on it? Well, I think there's 
there is an argument for increasing Australia's role uh, that is adding value to what we mine. In other words, just instead of just um, exporting uranium oxide concentrate in uh, 200 litre drums, uh, we could add value to that by uh, converting it, enriching it, uh, probably not fuel fabrication because that becomes a little bit too bespoke for different uh, reactor types. But um, up to enrichment, uh, it's fairly generic and the material is, is you could say, as fungible. Uh, but uh, given that there is excess capacity around the world for those front-end functions, why build more? Um, it's, uh, the excess capacity arises partly from you know, weapons programs which, which have wound down uh, and um, partly just from improvements to, um, to technology. So I don't think there's, any, um, there's really been any push uh, for the last 20 or 30 years to, to do anything about adding value at the front end. Nice idea, um, but you'd need to be competitive. On that, actually, because there was... I'm not actually sure where they're at, and I haven't sort of a, um, followed up on it, but Silex was a mob that was... Well, essentially, they had an idea of enriching uranium through a later or a method of laser enrichment, which is... It had some grandiose claims. It's... I think they suffered some... Uh, they had some funding, and I think that's been taken away from them. Do you know sort of much about what they were on, about where they were and where they are at the moment? Okay. Silex arose out of um, ANSTO um, research, and um, it's a, a it's a molecular it's a process. There's been two processes overseas, one in the US and one in France, which have been atomic processes, um, and those have sort of worked, but were hopelessly uneconomic. Silex is a molecular process. It does work. Uh, it's been proven up to a fairly, you know, rather more than laboratory scale. Um, but again, there's just not the demand for further enrichment capacity at this point. But it is a um, very promising technology. It's, um, and there is actually, I think, approval to build the first commercial plant in the United States. The intellectual property is um, very much subject to US restrictions. In other words, Australia is very much in bed with the US on that. Um, and it's no longer simply an Australian thing that Australian, that Silex, the company, can do anything with. So Silex, Silex Systems is the company, and uh, Silex is an acronym for... Um, Oh, it's, oh yep. I did know yes. this myself. I've forgotten myself. Um, oh, no, I've forgotten too. Anyway. It's something, 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 laser, laser excitation. Laser excitation. Something. Yeah. The Eels laser, certainly. Uh, anyway, it's... Um, it's uh, but, but, but Silex capitalised is the actual technology. At the moment, sort of, what with the turbulence going on in uh, federal politics at the moment i i have a guess that i can't sort of see the government the next government winning or the government winning the next federal election without sort of a, uh, a solid energy plan on the table agree or disagree agree which sort of which option do you think is le- at the moment is do you think is least politically risky for you know the future prime minister would it be fossil fuels renewable or nuclear uh, well, I mean, renewables are always popular. The problem is they don't work. 
at any scale. Um, and in saying that, I'm sort of saying, look, you know, that we've got a limited amount of hydro in, in Australia, uh, limited by water and gravity. Um, and um, the more wind and solar capacity you build on the grid, uh, the more expensive and difficulty, difficult it is to integrate into providing reliable and cost-effective supply. It gets quite expensive. Uh, so it's no longer cost-effective. Um, so I think that, um, that with all the discussion that's going on, Australians will be attracted to a plausible scheme to produce reliable electricity at an affordable price. And I think that that will be the priority, uh, but it all depends on how it's sold. Absolutely. What do you think, sort of, energy-wise, is the best option for Australia? Well, I think a mixture, uh, and I think that uh, I think nuclear. It, I, I've said for years, people have asked me, you know, when's Australia going to go nuclear? And and my answer for the last fifteen or twenty years has been, when we are sufficiently concerned about CO two emissions and climate change, and and if we are concerned about CO2 emissions, then nuclear is a no-brainer to replace much of our coal capacity. I think it's a, um, it's, I'd agree with you on that, and I think it's actually getting to the point now where that concern on, on, on carbon emissions is actually starting to penetrate deeper into the, um, into the Australian public's mind. Well, it's certainly in the public mind, whether, it's, um, whether that's articulated with the hip pocket is the problem. Um, I mean, if we pursue reducing emissions by building more wind capacity and, and solar capacity on the grid, then it's going to cost us an arm and a leg. Ask the Germans. Yeah. Um, it's... Like, the thing that's sort of come up recently that I've been looking at the last couple of weeks is this, a, uh, it's the, the Hambutcher Forest. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, mm. but, um, yep. yeah, it's the, uh, um, the, last of the, the last of the forest. They're like, the last 10%, I think, still exists, and it's... Yeah, just very recently, the last couple of weeks, they have decided, nope, the mine is continue and that forest has got to go to get at the coal. And it's, a, um, oh, it's, it's a forest and it's historic villages and it's, everything gets swallowed up to get at the brown coal. And this is in a country that's trying to make a virtue of reducing CO2 emissions. I mean, it's so laughable. Mm. I mean, it's I would so have th- laughable. I would have thought if there's anyone that was technically capable of running an economy with renewable power it was going to be the germans mm-hmm. it's just it just doesn't seem to be coming to be bearing fruit well it's uh no it's not bearing fruit and uh, to use another turn of phrase the chickens are coming home to the roost this year really and 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 really it's it's um you know the absurdity of what they're trying to do is is um being articulated by more and more people in senior positions what would you say perhaps to maybe young people or students that are listening to this podcast? Uh, I'd say that, you know, look, look, out, look out for the future possibilities with nuclear because it's, it's just an exciting technology and it's got to be the way we go if we are concerned about the environment. And I don't mean just um, CO2 emissions and producing probably some global warming um, but uh, but also just general environmental cleanliness. You know the the um, 
the coal coal-fired plants in Australia are pretty well controlled environmentally, but there's, there's still pollutants coming from them. Uh, and um, from a nuclear plant, there's virtually no pollutants, and that you um, you also have a very low footprint, so it's it's unobtrusive. And particularly if you put them along the coast, you don't need cooling towers. Um, and um, they uh, produce lots of reliable electricity, at a, and and it's. It's a very, just a very exciting technology, I think, that you can get so much energy out of so little material. Um, so, so for for students, I'd say, look, you know, keep it, keep an eye on nuclear power. It's most exciting, uh, and um, if there's half a chance, get into it. Excellent. Can we go back a little bit to a um, to those uh, the cooling towers? So, because I think we. Should spoke about this a little bit yesterday you can have the cooling towers as, uh, as an option for you know your cooling water before you discharge it back out into the environment but um it's not always necessary to do it you, there's not really any technical reason why you can't have um cooling water discharge out into a local water source can you tell us a bit more about that yeah well you, you use the term before you discharge it back out into the environment the point with cooling towers is you don't discharge it into the environment you keep cycling it Right. in your condenser circuit. This is the final sort of cooling circuit. So, um, But with a cooling tower, you evaporate a fair bit of it. You use the latent heat of vaporisation to cool it. Uh, and, um, and that means you've got to have constant make-up water to, um, to keep the quantity up. Uh, whereas if you can use water from, the envir- from a lake or a river or the sea... Uh, you can just use that through your condenser circuit and discharge it four or five degrees hotter uh, back into the environment. And I don't know, probably half nuclear power plants around the world uh, do that. And um, that's, um, you know, very, very low environmental impact. And the main advantage of this is that, especially for a place like Australia, where we are such an arid nation, you're not relying on consuming a potable water resource. Yeah, I think, roughly speaking, the all the power stations in Australia that use cooling towers evaporate the equivalent of Melbourne's water supply every year. It's a lot of water. So if you could replace those with uh, nuclear plants on the coast, you would save something like the equivalent of Melbourne's water supply which is a distinctly attractive side benefit, in my view, of uh, the potential for nuclear power in Australia. All right. Time to promote your books. Who should read what? <coughs> well, this is produced... Um, this is effectively the 11th edition of the book that was written in, first in 1978, published in seventy-eight, Nuclear Energy in the 21st Century. And this is written for just any layman who is got just a little bit of technical interest and knowledge, um, but you don't need um, to be a physicist or anything. Uh, and it's really talking about the um, need for energy and how electricity is produced and then getting into the specifically nuclear aspects of it and going right through that, talking about different reactor types, talking about uranium mining, talking about the front-end functions, talking about wastes, talking about proliferation talking about environmental effects uh, and with a chapter on the whole history of nuclear power. So it's fairly comprehensive um, and there's a very detailed glossary there 
Uh, and so that is a book for anybody who wants to know about nuclear power and get their mind around the whole subject uh, in about 120 pages. Nice. Where can people get that? Is through the World Nuclear Association or all good bookstores? What's the... Uh, unfortunately, all good bookstores, no. Um, I don't think so. But Amazon have it, Book Depository have it, and the World Nuclear Association website uh, has it. So you can buy it online just about like... Anyway. Just like anything else. Yep. Excellent. So it's, it's, it is readily available. And um, and this this the, the, the 12th... the Previous edition was 2012, so um, this is six years on from the last edition, and this will probably run, you know, be reasonably current for a while yet. Very good. Well, Ian Hall-Lacey, thank you very much for coming to speak to us on Going Fishing. Very happy to oblige, and um, thank you. No trouble. Going Fishing thanks Ian Hall-Lacey for agreeing to appear on the podcast. SILEX stands for Separation of Isotopes by Laser Excitation. The World Nuclear Association website can be found at www.world-nuclear.org. Links for Ian's book, Nuclear Energy in the 21st Century, is available on Amazon and the WNA website. Links in the description. Finally, the Message to the Minister soundbite is available. I would encourage all Australians who support nuclear power to forward it to their MP. Thank you for listening. At Fish and Going is the podcast's Twitter handle. Australia is a young nation located on the far side of the world. Our history demonstrates we can stand up to injustice, admit when we are wrong, and muster the courage to act in spite of our fears. By no means are we perfect but we often punch above our weight on the world stage. Today, our greatest challenge is not posed by international tensions, but from how humanity chooses to progress. We have everything we need to lead the world in making the right choice, and we only need to embrace the courage to do it. This has been Going Fishing, hosted by Logan Smith.